Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Welcome podcast listeners, digital agency owners, another episode of the Digital Agency Show. Today, we've got Paul Jarvis joining us for our interview. And uh, I'm really excited about this. If you don't know who Paul is, you might have been living under a little bit of a rock in this industry. Paul is one of the earliest famous web designers out there. Uh, he really started designing sites in the 1990s and picked up a lot of amazing clients, uh, folks like Mercedes-Benz and you know more recently clients like Marie Forleo. But he did not just design websites. He's also launched a, co- a couple courses on freelancing and uh, digital marketing. And he has been an avid writer and has been published on many, many websites and, and blogs and publications, some some that you've heard of, I'm sure, like Fast Company, Newsweek, Forbes, Lifehacker, BuzzFeed, uh, just to name a couple, and has now started to dabble in software uh, and, and doing some some uh, owning some software companies, which is really cool. So we're we're very fortunate to have Paul on our program today. Welcome to the program, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me, Brent. So, Paul, give us a a quick overview of uh, who you are and where you're at right now with your business. Yeah, so I've been, I guess, a designer and a writer uh, since the '90s. Um, and I'm sure we can dive into that a little more, but really where I'm at right now is that I don't do any more client work, even though that was basically all of my business for decades. And now I focus mostly on building software, teaching courses and writing books. And I have a book coming out called company of one, uh, being published through hot and Mifflin Harcourt. Um, I think late 2018, the publisher hasn't given me, given me an exact date yet. That's kind of what I'm doing right now is those three things. Very cool. I'm kind of interested as to what made you leave client work. Yeah. We 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 can get into that. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's go there first. I, I've got definitely sure. a few a few places uh that I, I want to go uh over over my time with you. But like what was the thing that made you go uh, I'm no longer, and, and you had some, maybe just give our, our readers a quick, or listeners a quick update on the types of clients uh, you worked with, because I think you had some really, some big names. It's not like you left like the main street business person, like you you left some big, big name clients. Yeah, so I started out working um, in pro sports, so I was doing websites for athletes like Steve Nash and Warren Sapp and a bunch of people who were big in the 90s. I don't know, I don't watch sports. So I don't, <laughs> they could still be big. I don't know. Then I kind of transitioned into working with uh, Fortune 500s and bigger companies like Microsoft, Mercedes, Yahoo, uh, Warner Music. And then kind of um, after that, because I kind of got sick of working um, for big, massive companies, I started to work for online entrepreneurs like Danielle Laporte, Marie Forleo, uh, Chris Carr, and a whole bunch of other basically women who created these mega brands um, kind of around their self and made made a business around their life. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of what I did. So I actually liked it. And I didn't I didn't stop doing it because I didn't like it, which made it really hard to to leave because I, 
I had a good job. Like it, it was good work. It was fun work. My clients all respected me. I had such a good time. I made some great friends working with these people. But I guess ultimately I figured that I had kind of done that for a long time. I had done that for like years and years and years and years because I started doing this in the 90s. And I just felt that I was ready to push myself again. Like I was ready to kind of try something different. And it wasn't an overnight thing either. It wasn't like all of a sudden I packed up my web design studio and was like, sorry, everybody, shop is closed. It took me a, it took me a couple of years to kind of transition from client services to product-based work. Because I, I still, one, I still, like I said, I still love doing it. I was making ridiculously good money doing it. And I was like, it was fun. Like, <laughs> it was like, I didn't wake up angry every day or stressed out that I had, pro- like, I basically got to run the business the way I wanted to. So I could set the deadlines, I could set the budgets, I could basically have the control that I needed to make the project go as well as it possibly could. And so, yeah, it was more just like, I'm, I really like experimenting. I really like trying things new. I really like pushing myself in directions that I'm scared of, which is pretty much every direction because I'm scared of a lot of things. <laughs> so I, it just felt like it was, I was ready to, to try something, try something different. Would you say that you got comfortable in that business? I mean, obviously pushing yourself outside of that comfort zone. Um, why, why not? instead of pushing yourself out of that space, why not take on like bigger clients or more clients or have more people? Was this a business? And I think I know the answer to this question, but were you just still solopreneur, uh, Paul Jarvis, or did you have, uh, you mentioned studio. Was there a team that you were working with or what did that structurally look like when you were doing work for Marie and stuff like that? Yeah. So good question. So that, so the way that I kind of structured it, because and it's funny because the, the book that I'm writing is called Company of One. So I've always been a company of one. But for a lot of the projects that I worked on, I was either part of, I was either brought in to a larger team, like with Marie or with Danielle, or I was hired and then I had to bring, I had to kind of build my team on a project by project basis. So I had, say, a few developers that I had good relationships with that I would bring on if that was needed. Or I had writers on like CRO people that I would bring on to, to do things as needed. So I could kind of build like a mini per project agency as I needed it, but I didn't have any employees. I've never actually wanted to have employees. I'm a much, I'm really bad at managing people, but I'm really good at making things and I'm really good at working with other people who are good at making things who don't require management. So that's kind of how the business was structured um, for basically the, the whole time that I was doing that. Any tips for people on how to, because I think that's really interesting. You're really bad at managing people, but you maybe are really good at working with people that are great at managing themselves and at doing great work. How could I, as an agency owner, uh, learn from that or use that model for myself? Is there anything that you did that made that work for you? Or uh, was it a lot of just trial and error? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just that I'm ridiculously picky with who I work with. So if I would, if I say was working with a developer and a writer on a project, because that's mostly what the projects were, was like me and a writer and a developer. And so I wouldn't really, I would really be picky in the beginning. Like I would never work with somebody that I didn't know or that didn't know somebody that I had a really good relationship with. So I would never just like put out a call like, Hey, I'm hiring 
a designer, I'm looking for a, a developer on a project or a writer on a project, I would basically lean entirely on my network of people that I know, like people that I've worked with, even clients that I've worked with, because a lot of times they work with, if they're working with me as a freelancer, they're probably working with a developer as a freelancer or a writer as a freelancer or other people that I knew. So, and I think that this is, this is a really key point here is that business is all about networking and all about your relationships that you have with other people, whether they do the same thing as you or they do related or auxiliary skills to what you do. And like even like the reason why I worked with like Marie or Mercedes or Microsoft or Yahoo, that wasn't just like me emailing them and saying like, hey, do you want to hire me? <laughs> or them like just Googling like web design. Like that's not how it works. Like even at the highest level, even being hired by like Fortune 500 companies, it was because of contacts that I had made in the past and relationships that I had built and fostered in the past. And that's how, back to the original question that you asked me for this, that's how I found people was my network because I didn't want, like, I don't want to take a chance, like, I don't want to take a chance on somebody that I don't know that hasn't been, it's almost like mafia style, right? <laughs> like, it's almost like, uh, if this person hasn't been vouched for, then uh, I don't know, this and it was always like I was always specifically looking for people that were one ridiculously talented and two did their work by themselves because maybe they had a manager that pushed them and told them every day this is what you should be writing code for and then yeah it had to be it had to be connection to somebody else in my network were you strategic in what you did in order to network with people that were decision makers at Mercedes or that had access to people like Marie Forleo or was there a time early on in your career where it was dumb luck or was it just that you got started so early that back then there just wasn't a huge, the, the landscape that there is now? Uh, I, I'm just thinking about the person that is just starting out or maybe a small agency today and they're they're not working with name brands. They're not working with really cool people or people that are fun and exciting and have great budgets. Uh, what is that seed that you planted years ago that they could maybe learn from and try to replicate today? Yeah. So the, the first thing was obviously I started in the mid nineties where all it took for me to get my first job was the fact that I had made a website. <laughs> and so I got hired by, I got hired by somebody because they're like, we can sell our clients these so-called websites. But the other thing is that I've never been, and I'm super introverted. Like you're never going to see me at like a networking event or a conference or anything like that. But still I make time every week to talk to people, to reach out to people, to like, it's funny because I teach a course as well for freelancers and the running joke in that course in the Slack channel is that I know everybody because people will say like, Oh, Dan Mall wrote this, this awesome article. And I'm like, I know Dan Mall. I talked to him and I recorded it. And here's the, here's the like conversation that I had with him. And so like I spent, like I, I actually carve out time in my calendar to connect with people and not because like I want them to do something for me or because I need to ask them to promote my thing. But just because like, if I'm in this industry, I'm interested in this industry and I'm interested in talking to other people who are there, who are like right there with me. They've got skin in the game as well. And they're doing interesting things and they probably think I'm doing interesting things. So like, I've always found a great benefit to, to having like contact, regular contact with as many people as possible. And like, that's what let that, what that is what led me to, to working with some of the big names is because 
I was talking to somebody that knew me, that knew my work, that knew Danielle or Marie or like the, the person in charge of UI for this like weird thing that I built for Mercedes that was on like an internal system that they had. So it was all like somebody knew somebody knew somebody. And I also did a lot of work with bigger agencies, like just kind of as a contractor where they would need somebody because big agencies, if things are going well, always kind of want to have a pool of freelancers that they can pull from. So I always had as many contacts as possible. The other thing that I did that, that I think is really important is I made sure every client that I worked with was happy. And it seems like the stupidest thing ever to say, but I know <laughs> so many people both. So I know so many freelancers who don't do this, who are always complaining that they don't have work. And I worked with so many clients who told me like, I don't know why, like you are so good at what you do. And like the last four designers we worked with were shit. And guess what? They didn't work with any of those designers again. And yet some of the clients that I worked with, like I think I worked with Danielle for 14 years or 15 years. Like the only reason I stopped is because her team got so big, she needed somebody full time. And that was around the time when I was stopping doing client work anyways. So I made all of my clients as happy as they could. And then they became my sales force. Like Danielle told Marie to hire me. So Marie didn't go out and look for a web designer for the project she was doing. Danielle told her to hire me. And so I was just one of one that she was looking at. It wasn't like Marie's typing in like web designer into Google. Yeah. Like she was told by somebody that she trusts, that she knows that this is the person she needs to hire to do the job. And so I was really only competing against myself. And that happened time and time again with all of the clients that I worked with, all of the names that people know of the client of like the bigger clients that I worked with. It was all that. It was all me doing trying to do as good of a job as possible for clients and making them as happy as possible. And if they weren't happy, like doing work to fix it. And that's, <laughs> it seems like silly. It seems silly, but I hear so often that people like don't do a good job on projects and then they wonder why they don't have any work and word of mouth and referrals is huge, especially if you're focused on a specific niche. Like you can make a name for yourself that's really good, really fast doing that. Or you can make a name for yourself that's really bad really fast and nobody in that industry is ever going to want to hire you again if you screw over the wrong person. Do you think it's doing just good quality work or were there elements of your overall process or communication style that helped do that? I, I feel like I've worked with people before that are really, really talented, but that their style or their way that they present themselves or the way they communicate uh, ends up kind of flushing the relationship down the toilet for me. Um, was it more one thing or another that you feel like stood out for your clients that made them go, Hey, Paul's the man. He's, he's the one that you need to hire. Was it, or was it just kind of a, a full experience? They got the Paul experience and they couldn't help themselves, but to refer you to awesome people. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned communication because that's always what it came down to. Like, I'm not the best web designer. Like I'm a hundred percent aware of this. Like I'm pretty good and I can like I can do work for the biggest brands but like I know I'm not the best web designer like there's web designers that can like design circles around me but what I am really good at and I'm glad you brought it up is the communication aspect of it so staying in communication with the client during the project having a very set process so they know exactly what happens at every step and what the next step is so we can both try to get to that next step together so there's not like we're on round 836 of revisions on this homepage. Line. <laughs> like, no, we have a set schedule. So like, you know that you're getting three rounds of revisions and anything past that is paid for. And then 
delays the schedule kind of thing. So I always had a very set process and I tweaked that process over the over the, the course of years that I did this, but I always had a process that I explained to clients before we started the work. And then I was always very communicative. I would always send one email every Friday to every client that I was working with, like every current project that was going on. What I had done, what was coming up, and what I needed from them. Sometimes it would be th- like three bullets. Sometimes it would be like a bit, like a page or so. Typically it wouldn't be that long. But it was always just like, it, it's Friday, the week is over. Here's the things I've done. Here's what I'm doing next week. So you know to like, you got to sign off on this thing so I can start this next thing. And then what I'm missing from you, because typically there's always something you need from a client mm-hmm. during a project. Like you, they're all, you're, they're always like missing one little thing. Like I still need that content for the page. <laughs> I was going to bring up content and everybody <laughs> I'm sure listening right now is going content. Exactly. So I, they always knew. So I was always communi- communicative at the end of every project. I would always have like a frank conversation with them. Like what went well, what didn't go well, what, like, how can we measure the success of this project? And then I could follow up with them. I find so many people that, that work on projects with, clients they have this kind of love them and leave them mentality where like they'll do a job for a client and then the client doesn't need the like the job is finished and then they don't talk to the client again and it's like you just lost this amazing lead that you could get like more work from or referrals from and just by following up with people that you've worked with like saying hey how's it going how's your business doing is there anything you need help with like sending an email like that to 10 people is probably going to get you at least one project if you do that like every few months, twice a year, that sort of thing. So communication has always been like, I'm not the best designer, but I'm definitely the best designer who communicates. I noticed earlier you said that you were introverted and you also have said that you've gotten all these amazing rad clients through networking and then talking about how to make customers happy came down to communication. I'm not saying introverted people can't communicate, but I, I feel like there's, and maybe it's just in me, I'm, I'm feeling like some tension around those ideas because I hear from people all the time that say, you know, Brent, I'm, I'm introverted. I can't call people. I can't just reach out to people. I can't make those connections because I, you know, it's just not who I am. Uh, how, as an introvert, do you, did you work through that or do you not see these things as uh, in, in conflict of one another? No, they're totally in con. Like I struggle with that every day. I have like the worst social anxiety ever, but I also don't see introversion as a crutch or an excuse. So I see the fact that I'm introverted. I see the way that I can use that to my advantage. Like if I'm uncomfortable talking to somebody in person, then maybe I'll just set up a Skype video with them. Or if I'm if I'm better at presenting my ideas in writing, then I'm going to put that into my process where I present ideas in writing as opposed to speaking in real time. So I never use that as a crutch because like, how, how, how would that serve me well other than me just being scared of stuff? And I'm already scared of stuff. But if I'm scared of stuff and then I act on it anyways, then at least I get benefit in my work, in my life, and everything else, right? So like I definitely... And it, it's hard, and a lot of it comes down as well, uh, Brent, to practice. I think, like, because I hear from a lot of people, like, oh, I'm I'm nervous when I have to talk like money with clients, and it's like, no shit, everybody <laughs> is. Like, <laughs> when does this not happen? But like, even like I don't know, probably like hundreds and hundreds of projects in for me, like it does get a bit better because I've had to like give so many people pricing for what I do, 
And in the beginning, it was way harder. But the only reason it stopped being as hard as it was then is because I just kept doing it. I didn't hide behind like, oh, I'm an introvert. I can't do this. It's like, if you want to work for yourself, you're going to have to talk money. If you want to work for yourself, you're going to have to be able to communicate with clients well. Because guess what? That's what's going to set you apart from every other freelancer, especially if you're like a designer or a writer or developer. All of them are bad communicators. If you can just be a little bit better than the average, then you're going to stand out. Right? <laughs> we, we're, we're in like <laughs> C plus territory. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of softball pitched, you know, hey, Paul, do you want to maybe speak at one of our events? And you're like, I don't speak at events. And I feel like that kind of constraint or boundary, you're very, uh, whether you know it or not, you're very strategic in where you choose to be more outgoing or extroverted. There's things that are off limits for you. Uh, how did you decide on that? Was it that you gave a presentation or a talk one time and it just did not go well for you and you're like, screw that, I'm never doing that again? Or is it more of a just, you know, it was an intentional choice from the beginning? Yeah, like I have done talks that have gone well, which is surprising. (laughs) But I just, like, I just don't. So one thing is I have a problem with authority and I'm like a petulant 13-year-old boy (laughs) in a lot of ways still, even though I'm like just about 40. And early on, people told me, like, oh, if you want to, like, get to the top of your industry, or especially when I started to do more writing in books, they're like, you have to get on the speaker circuit, you have to do these speaking gigs, and that's going to take you to the next level. And I was like, eh, I don't think so. How about I try things a different way to see if that works? And then it just became, like, where I live now, like, I live in the woods on an island in the middle of nowhere. So to travel anywhere requires an extra day on either side for me. It doesn't even matter where it is. So it's, it's a lot of work and I have so much on the go at any given time that like, I don't want to make time for speaking gigs. And I'm glad you brought up how I said I wasn't going to do it because I said I don't do those things because then it's not personal. If, if somebody, like if a client asks you for something and you say, I can't do that, then you're making it like, well, you could do that, but you aren't going to do it for me. Whereas if you say like, I don't do that then you've established that this is a rule that has existed prior to that person asking you for that thing. And then it becomes less of a like a personal insult or a personal jab at that person and more of a just like, okay, this, this guy or this girl has some boundaries. Like, all right then. Hmm. Are there any other boundaries that obviously uh, living in a remote place and not traveling for the purposes of speaking uh, are some clear don't do's. Are there any other don't do's that you've established that you found have been helpful either to keep you focused on your work or to get better outcomes out of your business? Yeah. So I kind of, so I group like tasks together and I find that that works really well. So like if somebody wants to do a call with me on um, Mondays or Fridays, I don't do calls on Mondays or Fridays because those are, those are like get Paul, get down to work days. Typically like me sitting and writing. <laughs> days so like but that gives me so much like today is a day where i'm on the phone for probably four or five hours and i'm not going to do anything after that because i'm an introvert and that makes me really tired so i'm probably just going to watch netflix (laughs) but like i can kind of like i kind of know because i'm doing i've worked for myself for 20 years like i kind of know the ebbs and flows of my energy and what works best for me so i know that like mondays and fridays i'd rather just get down to work middle of the week I'm totally cool to talk to people and I try to put that all on the same day. 
so I can just focus on that. So you don't have to think like, oh, okay, I also have to write for two hours or design for a couple hours. So the other thing, especially when I was working with clients, was that I kind of established like, and it's interesting because like if you set boundaries, then most of the time, especially if it's a decent client to work with, that they're just going to accept those boundaries. But if you don't set boundaries, then the client is going to set the boundaries. And then it's your fault if the, if the line is crossed. Like I was always clear to my clients that I will reply to you within a business day. And if we need to talk, then email me and we'll set up a call. Like if a client ever called my cell phone, I don't, I don't even think any of them even had my phone number. <laughs> like I don't do that. Like I hear from people like, oh, I get calls on the weekend from clients. It's like, then don't answer the phone. Or yeah. if people or a client email you at two in the morning and you reply back, then you've established that you're going to reply to them. And that, may, that might make them feel like, oh, this is the best like, agency or freelancer ever. They're replying to my emails at two in the morning. But now that's an expectation that you just set for them. And if you miss that, then they're going to be mad. Then they're going to email again. Maybe they'll call your cell phone at 2.30 in the morning because you didn't answer that email at two in the morning. And then you're going to get woken up. I hate being, I'm old. I hate being woken <laughs> up in the middle of the night. So I think, but like, if you say like, if you tell your clients, like, even if you, even if you do answer the phone, like I'll answer the phone between like 10 and, and 2 PM Monday to Friday. Or like, if you have a question about the project, email me and I will 100% get back to you within 24 hours. And then you've established what the, what the rules are. And I find a lot of times that clients need to be taught how to be good clients and they're willing to learn. But most freelancers or most agencies aren't willing to teach them. And then they brought in these bad habits that they've had from other projects they've worked on. They, or they just don't know better. Maybe they haven't hired an agency before or a designer or developer or a writer before. And they just don't know how it's supposed to go. But it's up to you to kind of set those rules. It's up to you to teach them to be the best client they can be for you and for the project and for the outcome. Would you ever tell your clients that you were doing that or was it just a, here's how Paul works. I, you know, you can call me between 10 and two, one business day, et cetera. Or, or was the, the title of that, uh, slide in your deck or page in your proposal called, you know, how to work with Paul. So you, you know, don't get frustrated or was it you literally saying, I want to teach you how to be a good client. Yeah, it was me, and it was. It, I always brought it up because I, I tried a few different ways, and I always brought it up in a conversation that I had with the client before we started working together when they were just a potential client, because I had the majority of my onboarding process for potential clients to um, working with clients was automated, except for the one step where we would talk on the phone, and I always kind of laid out how the, and I always kind of framed it as how the project works best, so we both get exactly what we want out of it, and I didn't like. I'm not going to be like, hey, Mercedes, these are the like, if you want to work with Paul, <laughs> they don't even know. If you're going to work with the Paul, this is how Mercedes is going to work with you. <laughs> exactly. It was more like, it, it's more, it's more positioning exercise, right? It's more like, if you want the project to go as well as possible to get the best intended outcome, then this is the process that we follow. I'm always going to email you on Friday with an update. If you need to get a hold of me, I will be available and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. And as well, like if if they did need to talk to me, I and they knew that those were the rules. If I made an exception to the rules, like I I called them back instead of emailing them back, then they would be happy. Whereas if there were no rules and they called me at one in the morning and I didn't answer the phone, they'd be like, "Why is he answering the phone? Like I should be important." But if they know if they know the groundwork for a relationship, and then once in a while I come in 
quicker or I get back to them faster, then they're like, okay, this is, this is cool. I don't expect this, but I feel good that this happened. I feel like that positioning almost in the lens of what's in it for your client. It's, it's so easy, I think, as an agency or a freelancer to kind of, uh, you, you win the deal and then it's, well, let me tell you how I work or how this is going to go down. Here are my, you know, my ground rules. And to forget that little key ingredient of the reason that I have these ground rules or these boundaries is so that you get the best possible end product. And I feel like if you forget to mention that, that, you might not get a great experience out of saying, you know, giving your client the rap sheet of rules. Uh, yeah, you just come across as bossy <laughs> unless you frame it well. You basically you have to you have to position your bossiness as a positive outcome for them. How has uh, you know you mentioned that networking was really key for you with uh, your talent pool as well as your clientele. And I know you've been an avid writer and and content producer in our industry. Has that supported the networking or has that, like, how do you view that as fitting into that overall strategy? Like what, what compelled you to start writing besides that? Obviously you have a, a, you know, it's just probably part of your DNA. Um, what was, what was the, the decision there? Was that just to support the business or to create an avenue to, to, to talk about all the things that were going on within your business? Yeah. So in the, in the beginning I was, I started, so I looked at other web designers and I realized some, I realized that they were all writing for other web designers and I could never figure it out. Cause I was like, why are you writing for the web design? Like, it's nice that you're writing for the web design industry, but web designers don't hire other web designers all that often, right? So I was like, what if I just wrote for the types of people that I wanted to work with? <laughs> like that to, that to me in my brain seemed like a good idea. I'm glad I did it because then that ended up like doing really well for myself. And I wrote a couple books and taught some courses on it and that. But like I started to write for the types of clients that I wanted. Like I, I wanted a very specific type of client that I would have the most fun with that I could push some boundaries with. And so I started writing for, for them. And my originally, like I've had a news, a very long running newsletter now, but originally that newsletter was created to share those kinds of content, like with my clients, like if they were interested in having a website built by somebody like me, and this would be the topics that they're interested in. But the other thing was that it was a weekly newsletter where I could let people know I have a spot opening up in two months. If you, if, and it, it's interesting because you can use kind of the, the mentality of product marketing for um, service-based work because you only have a finite, I mean, every agency has a finite amount of time that they can do client work. But it, not many agencies like explain that to clients. Like if I can only do three projects a month because that's the amount of work I can do, I can tell people like I, there are only three openings this month or I have three, or if you're booked in advance, like I have three openings uh, in May. And if you want to take one of those, then here's the onboarding process that you need to follow. We need to talk on the phone. And I book projects when I have a signed contract and a down payment. And so you can use things like scarcity in a service base. I was using, I was doing that for years and years and it worked so well. But originally you're back to your original question, like that content, the regular content made it so that when people, even if they weren't interested in hiring me now or even if they don't if they didn't have a need for my services now they were on my mailing list so every single week they would get an email from me 
And I, it would basically be a reminder that I exist, that my services exist. So in two months or in a year or in six years when they were like, well, I need to redesign my website. And the first person they think of is me. They don't go on like Elance or type in my favorite story today, which is typing into Google web designer. They're like, I've been hearing from this Paul guy for years. I should probably just talk to him. And then again, we've established that this is like I'm competing with myself instead of competing with an industry of web designers. I'm just competing with me because I've been showing up. My name keeps popping up in their inbox, which is where most people spend most of their days. So for me, that, that was the, the original draw to content was because I could, I could so easily sell services like that. I could basically create like bidding wars for like booking my schedule. And then I could raise my rates because my calendar was always booked. One of the things that you just said that I think is, I just want to draw some attention to that, which is that you were writing for the types of clients you wanted, not for peers. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I think we can all, we all know what's on our blog and what's not on our blog. But I think when I, if I were to go to like sortfolio.com and just start perusing agency blogs, uh, you know, it's like, I just see the, uh, you know, newest features of HTML5, responsive web design, you know, basics and Twitter bootstrap framework. You know, it's it's always the stuff that's going on inside the business. And I feel like it's the, the agency owners and freelancers, they just so often forget to make the leap to what's actually going on in the my client's business and what are they concerned about or thinking about today? How did you approach that voice in that frame? Because I think there's something incredible to learn from that, that we're not hiring each other. The purpose of our blog or our newsletter is to attract business. That's the number one thing that people could be using those channels for because the number one thing we hear about over and over and over again uh, from people that are considering our, our business accelerator programs is I don't have enough clients. I don't have the right clients. And then I go to their blog and it's like, you know, web design this, web design that, HTML5 this, Twitter, you know, it's, it's always the industry speak <laughs> and never the stuff for the customer. I think you have a really important lesson that people can learn from you like, how did you approach that? Was it just natural for you? Or did you have to look at other influence that were, influencers that were doing that? Like, break that down for me. Yeah, so I, I looked at what everybody else was doing and did the opposite, which is <laughs> kind of how I made a name for myself as like a counterintuitive person. But yeah, so it, it was mostly that. It was mostly that I saw that everybody else was doing it one way. And I was like, I wonder if I do it a different way because the other way actually seems to make a lot more sense to me. And then I tried it and then it worked. But a lot of it too was that I found that a lot of people hired me because of me, not necessarily. Like obviously they liked my design. They like like all of my work is very minimal and stark and lots of white space. So they, they obviously liked my portfolio because a portfolio isn't really an illustration of your past work. It's the type of work you're going to get hired to do in the future. But the, the main thing there was that they liked my opinion. So everything I wrote, and I can't help myself with this, but like everything I write or everything I create has an opinion. And I think if you're a designer, like you can't help but your design is going to have an opinion whether you want it to or not. So I, I wasn't afraid to lead with my opinion. So I wasn't afraid to lead with what I think was working for uh, like the, the types of clients that I wanted. I wasn't afraid to lead with like, this is how I think things should be done. 
And people, uh, the funny thing with that is, is when you have an opinion is people start to think of you as like an expert simply because you're talking about your opinion, as opposed to just like, I, I wouldn't see somebody as an expert necessarily if they were just regurgitating industry information or writing about like how grid systems work. I wouldn't necessarily think that that person was necessarily an industry expert. I might think that they're a, a skilled technician at what they do. But when somebody starts talking about um, like a, an opinion, and a lot of what I wrote about was business because I had I, I, when I started writing, I'd worked with I don't know hundreds of clients. I like I heard I I always told people that I could be a venture capitalist, except they didn't have <laughs> enough money to be venture capitalists. I'd heard so many pitches from people and their businesses that wanted to hire me because they tell me about their business when they want a website. Yeah. So I kind of knew what was working and what wasn't and trends that I was seeing and what I was seeing that was doing really well for existing clients. So it's funny, like I could write articles about like, say for example, um, pop-up windows or something like that. And I could talk about stats from previous projects that I did. And that's going to make me look good. Cause if I say like I increased the signups on this previous client's website by 56%, then everybody reading that is going to say, or is going to think that Paul's the guy that increased the signups on yeah. that other person's website by 56%. Like I want that 56% boost for exactly. sure. Exactly. So a lot of it was telling stories, but it was telling stories about like past client success. And that, that to me is like, it's an easy sell at that point. Like all I need to do is get on the phone with these people and see if we're a good fit in terms of like the way that we communicate because they already wanted to like I don't think I didn't talk to very many people that weren't sure if they wanted to hire me like I talked to people who thought they wanted to hire me or knew they wanted to hire me because they had read my writing or they got a recommendation from somebody else so I closed almost every pro like almost every potential person that I had in the like sales funnel I could close because they were only in that funnel if they've been reading my writing or listening to me or hearing from me from other people saying like you must hire this person. So it was always like like I'm not a great salesperson because I had such an easy job selling people because they would they would come to me when they knew they wanted to work with me anyways. So I didn't really have to do that good of a job selling. I just had to make sure that we were a good fit. One of our, our rules in boot camp is uh, relationships equal interactions over time. And I think what, what I'm hearing from you is you, you, you know, email and in your weekly updates were very personal. They had opinion and probably to a lot of people on their, on your list, they felt like they had an interaction with you every single week, even though you might not be doing a call with them every week. And maybe by the time they called you, they had read, you know, 20 newsletters or something like that. And they had 20 interactions with you and they knew how you thought and what you liked and didn't like. And maybe how many times you helped a client increase their conversion by 56%, which is really important things for a client to be thinking about before they talk to you because then they have a really good idea of what you might be able to do for them. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because the email mimics a one-to-one relate, like email newsletters mimic a one-to-one relationship because your inbox is where you have one-to-one relationships with people and newsletters show up in the exact same place. So people know that it's not like a one-to-one relationship, but it still feels that way. So having these relationships build the trust that's necessary, that's a precursor to commerce, right? 
So in talking to people, like I get email, I get replies, sometimes hundreds and hundreds of replies on a Sunday because I send my newsletter out on Sunday because it's called the Sunday Dispatches. So it'd be weird if, <laughs> if it, it was came out on Monday. <laughs> every other Thursday or something. So, but like I spend time to reply to people because then, then that builds the relationship to another level. And then I see that like the people that email me that I reply with and have conversations with, like, yeah, I like to talk to these people and they're interesting people. But they're also the people who are more likely to to buy my stuff or to hire me when I was when I was doing that. So it's just a it's just a win win to do that. Like liking somebody's tweet isn't building a relationship. Like I, you're not gonna. <laughs> it's funny to let people think it's building relationships on the internet now. Like that's not building a relationship. But like getting on a call with somebody every like I was talking to. So I hired somebody to help me with uh, a project that I'm doing now. And I hired her because last year she had just like, we talked on Twitter a bunch of times and she was like, do you want to just hop on a call and have like a virtual coffee with me and we can just like shoot the shit? I was like, sure, that sounds great. And then like, she wasn't thinking that I was going to hire her. I wasn't thinking I was going to hire her. But a year later when I needed somebody to do um, CRO stuff, she was the first person I thought of because we've had a couple calls on Skype and we talked a little bit on social media and on email. And so that's a per, the first person that I thought of. I didn't go to Google and type in like CRO expert. I thought about the person that I know that does this, that I've been in contact with for a year and been like, okay, this is the person that I need to hire. So it kind of like I, I've been on both sides of that now where I only hire the people to, that, that do that. And I was the person who's being hired by people because I was doing that. I've taken a lot from this. I've got now two pages of notes. <laughs> I think if our visitors are sitting at home or at work and they have been able to take notes, gosh, man, there's so many takeaways for me. Even just doing the opposite of what you see other people doing. I mean, I, I'm just throwing this out there, but is that why you went with like a Sunday release for your email? Because nobody emails on Sunday or something? Or Yeah, like, so I, I read some stats that email was the lowest open and click rate for newsletters. So I was like, ah, let's see about that. Uh, and now, now my <laughs> list is like 30,000 people and it has an open rate that's doubled industry average. And the click rate is triple or quadruple the industry average. Which is weird because like I don't even have very many links in my newsletter. So I think people are just clicking on like the masthead and going to my about page or something. So I don't even link to that many things. Cause it's typically like I send an article about like the things that you and I talk to we're ta- we're talking about. And that's it. Like it's just like you get an article. So there's not even that many things to click. But yeah, I was just like, this is how people say it should be done. How about if I do things the way that I want things to be done instead? And sometimes that backfires, like completely goes <laughs> up in my face. But whatever, we've talked about two times where it hasn't done that. So that's great. Paul, are you ready for our lightning round? Sure. All right. What is the best advice you've ever received? I'm just trying to think. Probably that um, that liking somebody's Facebook status update <laughs> or Twitter isn't isn't building a relationship. I can't remember who told me that. Maybe it was Derek Sivers who told me that. I can't remember who told me that. Somebody smarter than, than me told me that. I was like, I like that. And then I just started to use it. That's great. Might have been, no, actually, I think it was Chris Brogan who said that in, in his book, Trust Agents with uh, Julian Smith. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So if you're just, if you're trying to like your way to new clients, maybe uh, take heed from Paul and reach out and make that connection to have a conversation or some other type of meaningful. And I think people know what meaningful interactions are, uh, but we just get kind of, 
we lose sight of that. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? Uh, probably the fact that I'm willing to try random and crazy ideas. Like that's led to the most spectacular failures in my life, but it's also led to the best, to the biz, biggest successes in my life as well. So I'm not being afraid to try things and just basically treating life like an experiment that you don't really, you, you can't win an experiment, right? Mm. You can just run an experiment and see if your hypothesis was true or false. So I think kind of approaching life in that regard has been pretty beneficial to me because I have some really like weird ideas and end up trying a lot of them. In, in what I heard, just heard from you, and I want to separate this for our listeners, is kind of two things. It's not just trying crazy things, but it's approaching them, these crazy things, as a hypothesis or as a scientific method style experiment. Not just like, oh, I'm out doing random stuff all the time, but uh, I have a crazy idea and putting a little bit of intent behind of figuring out what what does working look like? Like, What does the, the test succeeding look like versus just trying mm-hmm. crazy stuff? Because I feel like it's easy to to now just take Paul's words of like, oh, I'm going to go try crazy stuff. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, there should probably be a, a little bit of an underlying strategy there, <laughs> not just like I'm going to tightrope across some like skyscrapers or something. Don't, don't do that. Kids, <laughs> Can you share, uh, is there a tool or internet resource that you use uh, regularly, daily or weekly that you think our listeners would find valuable? So I'm not a big tools person. So like the tool that I use the most is Google Chrome. <laughs> like my browser like if i'm going on social media i go on social media like you and i talked before we started recording like i don't have notifications for anything on any of my devices so mm. if i want to check email i type in gmail.com on my browser and i go to it if i want to go on twitter to see what people are saying about me then i type in twitter.com and go to it like i'm not really i don't really use a whole lot of tools or i don't really care like if I don't have my um, my writing tool available, then I'm just going to write what I need to write in an email, or by hand, or something like that. Like I don't really, I'm not really a big tools. I'm not really a big tools guy, man. But I think that's so interesting. So do you? <laughs> I'm just out of curious. This is like me getting curious on lightning round, which I usually don't do. But do you like you say? Okay, when you want to go to Twitter, you type in Twitter in the browser. So I'm making an assumption here that you don't have a mobile phone with Twitter on it? I don't know. Maybe maybe you do. I do, but I would need to open it. Like, I don't get notifications. Ah, okay. So just... Tweets. I don't get notifications. The only thing that my phone does is ring when there's a call. Gotcha. And okay. text if it's not my message. You live in, like, a notification-free space. I'm just... And this is me getting more yes. curious. So what about calendar uh, stuff? How do, how do you know that... Like, Google tells me every time I have a meeting starting in 10 minutes, so I don't know. Yeah. Is that... Is that, is that, does that make it through or are you saying you don't even have that? Some, well, yeah, but I don't have that much in my calendar. Like on Mondays and Fridays, my calendar is empty. Same with the weekends. My calendar is completely empty except for probably two days. A week. I try to keep everything that needs to happen at a specific time to two days a week. So on Monday and Friday, I get no calendar notifications because my, my calendar has to be empty on those days. Otherwise, I've done something wrong or I need like one exception every like year. So yeah, like I do have calendar notifications, but I don't have like, let me just look, I'll open my calendar right now. <laughs> Today I have, t- so Monday I had zero, Tuesday I had one because I grabbed coffee with a couple friends downtown. Today I have three calls, nothing tomorrow, nothing Friday, nothing Saturday, nothing. So like there's five things on my calendar for this week. And so I'll get those five notifications, but it's it, it's only going off on days when I'm not doing anything other than like talking on the phone anyways. It's awesome. What book would you recommend and why? 
Um, right, well, right now I was just finished because uh, Chris Brogan and Julian Smith just re-released Trust Agents, and it's a, it's an oldie, but it's a good. They they updated some of the content in there, but that's definitely a gooder. I think if people still read, fi- I still read fiction. Like I'm a voracious reader, so I think Blake Crouch's. Um, Dark Matter is probably the best nonfiction book. It's a book about like quantum mechanics and short and like the Schrodinger's cat thing, but it's like really interesting and story driven. So that's probably my favorite nonfiction book lately. But the one that I'm reading now that uh, is like businessy related is Trust Agents, which I think is a great book. How can our audience find out more about you? What what can they check out that you might have for them? Uh, Google Paul Jarvis on the first couple pages. Uh, if you want to hear me every week, sign up for the Sunday Dispatches, uh, which is my weekly newsletter. And I get you'll get articles kind of like what uh, you and I have been talking about for, for, for your show every Sunday in the morning, early in the morning. Unless you live in Australia, then it's like Monday afternoon or something like that. You might have to change the time you send that out so that they can get it on Sunday too. But I just, so I tried that, <laughs> but then when people are traveling, so it remembers the last time they've opened. So in Mailchimp, it remembers their longitude and latitude of the last time that they opened something, uh, or no, it remembers where they've signed up from, the longitude and latitude of where they signed up from. So people were getting emails at random times all the time. So now people, regardless of the time zone they're in, they know that they get it at a specific day on a specific time every week because i tried that for a while i was like maybe everybody should get a sunday morning at 6 a.m but like technology isn't smart enough to do that 100 percent of the time if somebody's traveling or if they move i'm i'm cool with getting it on sunday even when i'm in australia <laughs> and i have an aussie here in our studio today so i'll go i'll go tell her that she can sign up for the monday dispatch yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> well, paul this has been uh super informative i know i got a lot of, out of our conversation today i've got a page of notes i'm now going to go uh decimate my monday uh tuesday friday uh scheduled meetings and and try to get get that paul jarvis like calendar for myself so i can be super productive um but just thank you so much for hanging out with us today on the digital agency show yeah thanks brent this was a lot of fun all right thanks guys